All right, I invite you to take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Luke 15. Luke 15 is one of the most well-known and popular passages of Scripture in our Bibles. There are three parables found in this chapter, but the one that takes center stage is the one that we call the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. This parable is beloved in the church for its portrayal of God's love and mercy for the sinner. And indeed, such love and mercy is beautifully expressed, not just in this parable, but in the two parables uh, preceding it. In the other two parables of Luke 15, we see tremendous, tremendous lessons about the love of God for the sinner. But you notice I didn't call this message the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal son. I called this message the angry son. And I called this message the angry son because as we consider the purpose of the parable, we will find that that particular parable, the focus is not actually about the prodigal son. The prodigal son is in the parable, and we can learn good lessons from the prodigal son, but the point of the parable is actually the angry son. So we're going to get through the entire chapter tonight. Let's begin walking through it, because there's plenty to cover. We begin in Luke 15, beginning in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So Jesus is teaching. Now remember, we're we're flip-flopping audiences all the time. And uh, the publicans and the sinners are coming to hear him, the Bible says. Publicans were Jewish-born tax collectors. They uh, collected taxes for Rome. One of Jesus' own disciples named Levi or Matthew, the one in fact who wrote the gospel of Matthew, is or was a publican. They collected taxes and it kind of worked this way. They worked for Rome and they were charged with collecting enough taxes so that when Rome compared how much money they got with the census and how much money they were supposed to get, it matched. Other than that, they were given rather broad discretion as to how they collected the money. They just needed to get the money. And because of this, publicans and tax collectors would often be quite dishonest with their tax collecting purposes. Uh, when you think about this, we, we recognize this from Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, the wee man, uh, as we sing in the song, uh, when he accepted Christ and when he recognized Christ's ministry, uh, he said one of the things he was going to do is repay those who had been who he, who he had wronged, who he had cheated, right? And we, we recognize that the, the publicans would do this regularly. So it would go something like this. Rome would tell them, we need $100 from each family in this city. And the tax collector would say, okay, Rome says they need $100 from each family in this city. And they would go to each family and they'd say, Rome says you need to pay them $120. And so they would extract $120 from every person in the, from every family in the city and they would give Rome the hundred dollars and they would pocket the other 20. 
Now, from one sense, the strategy makes sense, right? Because if there's a particular family who's being extremely difficult and you had a little extra from the other families, then you could still make up what you needed to and keep Rome happy, even if one or two families didn't pay out in time. So in one sense, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a valid strategy, but it became a method of theft. And because of this, they were seen as thieves. They were seen as dishonest men, and rightfully so. And not only that, but they were Jewish tax collectors, right? Which means they were collecting taxes from their own people for an occupying country, an occupying nation, which which meant they were effectively traitors and thieves and dishonest in the eyes of the Jews. Not people that were well respected. In fact, they were viewed as very low in Jewish society. They were viewed as sellouts and were effectively outcasts. Rich outcasts, but outcasts nonetheless. Sinners, we see here not just publicans that came to Jesus, but also sinners. The the term sinners was a general name for those who, through various acts, choices, and indiscretions, were looked down upon uh, by the moral-based culture, morality-based culture, for various moral indiscretions. They were those that did not follow the law. They 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 um, did not perhaps go to synagogue. Um, women of ill repute, prostitutes, all of those types of people, people who were clearly breaching the mosaic. Law, people who are pre- clearly breaching mose- uh, um, mor- morality and, and moral expectations, they were sinners. So you had the publicans and you had the sinners. And the Bible says that the publicans and sinners came to hear Jesus. And not only did they come to hear Jesus, but Jesus received them and ate with them. The Bible tells us. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured. They were upset at this because, see, in Jewish culture, eating, and, uh, yes, in Jewish culture, eating was a, um, intimate form of fellowship. And so to eat with publicans and sinners was to truly fellowship with them. You might tolerate a person you didn't like and condescend to talk with them, but you would never sit down and eat a meal with them in Jewish culture. Because you receive a sinner, receiving them into the home, eating with them is seen as validating their lifestyle. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees had a philosophy. If you're not up to snuff morally, we will have nothing to do with you. And we will have nothing to do with you in order that you can know that you're not up to snuff morally. We are actually going to withhold ourselves from you for the purpose of making it clear to you that you are not where we think you ought to be morally. The pressure to conform to this moral values uh, system, to the moral values of society, was driven by their authority, the authority of the leaders in that society, and their willingness to cast you out if you fell short of their expectations. This was how the society operated. So our controversy here is over Jesus being willing to receive sinners for fellowship. Now take note of the fact that he was not validating their sin. We, we never read of Jesus validating their sin or saying that they're okay in their sin. We never read uh, about Jesus telling them that they're okay just as they are and that nothing needs to change. The controversy was about them, was about Jesus being willing to engage in a meaningful relationship with sinners. That was the controversy. And to treat them as societal and humanitarian equals, though they were sinners. And by the way, this is not an, a unique controversy, is it? We came across it in Luke 7 with the prostitute who entered into the house of Simon the Pharisee to wash Jesus' feet. And Simon said, if, this, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he would never allow her to do this. 
And that's where we even referenced it this morning, where Jesus looks at Simon and says, those who are forgiven much, love much. So here's our context. This is our controversy. Jesus did not reject that woman who was washing his feet just because of her past. And Jesus' point throughout has been, if I reject people based upon their intrinsic moral value, then I would have to reject all of you. Because there's none righteous, and except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Jesus is going to give three parables in Luke 15. The first two are going to speak directly towards Jesus' thinking and actions, why he operates the way he does. The third parable is a rebuke toward the Pharisees and their actions and their way of thinking and why their way of thinking was such a problem. And so we are first going to understand some things about our God, then we're going to understand some things about ourselves so that we can guard ourselves against such actions. Let's dig in. Verses 3 through 6, the first parable. He spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which, after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found... My sheep, which was lost. Now, the first parable here is of a shepherd. And this shepherd has 100 sheep. Now, 100 is a pretty good number of sheep. But Jesus asks the question among those those Pharisees and Sadducees on this day. Which of you, if you were a shepherd and you had 100 sheep and one of them was lost, would not leave the 99 to go find the one? Now, you would leave the 99 safe, right? It's not just you're abandoning the 99 for the one. You are taking the 99. You've got 99. You've counted it up and you, you effectively have them in a safe place, right? You've counted them up and you're missing one. So you were out in the fields, they were grazing, you called them, they came back, you, you got them back in, in, through the gate into the, the paddock, and you're missing one. So you go out and you spend the time and the effort to find the one that's lost. Jesus says, who's not going to do that? Which of you would not go and do that? Now, economically, practically, the idea that the man is going to strip resources from the 99 in order to give special attention to the one is not necessarily reasonable, right? The 99 are more important economically resource-wise than the one. But here's the thing. The one who is missing needs more resources devoted to it right now because it's lost. The one that's missing needs more resources than the 99 that are not missing because it's lost. And no shepherd would call that extravagant or unnecessary. It is necessary. Why? Why does that one need more time? Why does that one need more effort? Why does that one need more more energy? Because it's lost and it needs to be found. When you have a lost sheep, that sheep needs to be found. So the shepherd goes and gets it. Now, Jesus' point is this. If you don't resent the shepherd for going out and spending the time to find the lost sheep, to leave the 99 who are in the paddock to pursue the one who isn't, then why would you resent Jesus for leaving the relative moral comfort of those in Israel who are observant of the law in order to pursue those relative few who aren't? Any good shepherd would do the same thing. 
So why is it so surprising? Why is it so upsetting if Jesus is who he claims to be, God in flesh, that the God of all flesh would devote time and resources to going out to those who are more in need and spending more time with them to bring them into the fold? Jesus says the shepherd will devote true time to find a lost sheep. And not only will he devote the time, but when they get back, when he finds the sheep, he will invite his friends over and call for his friends to rejoice with him that the sheep which was lost has now been found. And anyone who is a shepherd's friend would rejoice with him at this, at this, this wonderful event. And notice the picture of restoration here. The shepherd will find his sheep. The shepherd places the sheep on his shoulders. The shepherd brings him home, carries him home. It's a picture of tremendous love. It's a picture of tremendous compassion. The shepherd taking the burden of restoring, (laughs) excuse me, the sheep upon himself. The shepherd is the one who's investing the resources in finding and restoring the sheep. And Jesus makes... His point in verse 7. He says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over the ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now, the parable was intended to teach a lesson, and Jesus tells us exactly what that lesson is. We're going to talk a little bit more about this after we get through all, all three parables. We will again review the purpose of parables, how we interpret parables, because again, if we interpret everything, if we allegorize this, so that, that in this parable, the Pharisees are the sheep, and the one missing sheep is, is, is this, the publican and the sinner, and Jesus is the shepherd, then we are, we're, in, we're already in, in, in bad theological ground, right? Because the, the Pharisees aren't sheep, as far as they're not in, in the flock, they're not in Christ, they are, in fact, adversaries to Christ, right? So we, 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 can't, we can't go there, and we could say, okay, well, Israel, so we could call them the lost sheep of Israel, that's valid, we could go there. But then it breaks down with the sinner repenting thing, right? Because he's going to the lost sheep of Israel and the ones that are lost, he he brings back to the flock, but that's repentance. But then the ones in the flock aren't repentant. So it all breaks down if we try to allegorize this parable. It's not supposed to be that. It's It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And the heavenly meaning is this and only this, that Jesus rejoices when he finds a lost sheep. That's the meaning that Jesus rejoices when a sinner repents. He says that's the meaning, right? That's what he says in verse seven, that, that, that Jesus and not just Jesus, but heaven, heaven rejoices when a sinner repents more than more than the 99 that need no repentance. Heaven rejoices. That's the point. That's the only point we really need to draw from it. If we want to draw other lessons, we can do that as long as they're theologically sound. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. Okay? That's his, that's his case. That's his point. We continue. The second parable has the same message. Jesus just gives a different perspective. And perhaps he gives this second perspective because within this crowd, particularly if publicans and sinners were there, were probably both men and women. And so he uses a second parable that gives the exact same meaning, but he uses a woman this time in the parable. And perhaps it is that he's using a woman in the second parable in order to uh, help connect it to both the men and the women, uh, particularly 
perhaps the publicans and sinners that were around. So we draw from this second parable in verses 8 and 9, and we read it, and the Bible says this. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she loses one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. This parable is of a woman, right? Having ten pieces of silver. Uh, This likely would have been at least a portion of her dowry, which in the Talmudic period would have been at minimum 180 grams of silver and often more depending upon the economic status of the family. Now, this was an important thing. This 180 grams of silver needed to be given so much so that it would have been a a deep, a, a man would have been extremely ashamed if he did not have enough silver to be able to provide for his daughter a dowry, he would borrow for it. Uh, uh, and if if the woman did not have a father who could handle it, sometimes the community would actually c- come together and pitch in. The synagogues would come together and pitch in to provide the dowry for a bride. It was very important culturally for them. So we it might stand to reckon then, if this was a part of this woman's dowry, uh, and it seems like it would be so because it's her silver, right? It's not her husband's silver, it's her silver. Uh, so if it was a part of her dowry, then it would have even more significance perhaps than just the money itself, right? So you have the money, which would not be a, a necessarily a small amount of money, but then you'd also have the reality that this is her dowry. This is her father's investment in her, right? Her father's investment in her. She has 10 pieces of silver and she loses one of those 10 pieces. Well, what will she do? Naturally, she'll go out of her way to find it. Again, she commits extra time, effort and resources to finding the one lost coin. She lights a candle. She sweeps the house. She diligently looks for the coin. And when she finds it, what does she do again? She doesn't just rejoice herself. She calls her friends and her neighbors and calls for them to rejoice with her because that because she has found that which she lost. And once again, the focus is not on the state of the coin. The focus is not on the other coins. The focus is upon the woman searching, finding, calling her friends, and they all rejoice together, right? That's the focus of this parable of the missing coin. And once again, the circumstance is completely relatable and reasonable. Why wouldn't a woman, having lost one of her ten coins, devote extra time and resources to finding it? This one coin needs more resources than the others, which are not lost. And when she finds it, the object of her rejoicing is quite naturally the lost coin because it has been found. And again, she invites her friends and she would expect that if they are her friends, that they would be happy that she has found something that she lost. The shepherd should expect that all of his friends would rejoice with him that he had a, uh, he had lost a sheep and now it's found. The woman would expect that all of her friends would rejoice with her that she had lost a coin and now it was found. And then Jesus gives the application again in verse 10. He says, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. The lesson is the same, that God rejoices over that which is found. But the context...
context is actually slightly different, right? Uh, verse 7, we read, Joy shall be in heaven over the one sinner that repents more than over the 99. So we see particularly that the, the rejoicing is in the one, right? And, and it's contrasted with the 99 to show that this is the one in whom we are rejoicing, the one that is returned, the one that has been found. And joy is in heaven. In, in verse 10, we see that the joy uh, is with God and his angels. In the presence of the angels of God, there is joy. So these are the friends, right? These are the friends. The angels of God are rejoicing over one sinner that repenteth. And here we don't have the contrast with the, with the other nine coins, right? Jesus doesn't say more than the nine coins in this particular case. He's focusing, in this case, on the friends. So the first one, the focus was on the restoration. The second one, the focus was on the friends. And by the way, the point as it extends is, and if you're my friend, you'll rejoice too. Now we come to the third parable. What's often called the prodigal son. And we're going to see a very similar idea in this parable. But then it's going to go in a a different direction at the end. And the fact that Jesus is going to give three parables that are so similar. But then the last one, when it gets to the point where the other two ended, continues. That should cause us to perk our ears. Because we have a trend and that trend has just been broken, right? We have something that, okay, pattern, pattern, pattern. And then at the end of this pattern is something new. Key in on what's new. Or else the other two would have been sufficient, right? But there's something new in this one. And that's what we'll talk about as we get into the parable of the angry son. Verses 11 to 13, we read this. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said unto his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. The scenario as we have received it is this man. Two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son demands that his father give him his inheritance, which is quite a demand. Uh, It's an extremely selfish demand. The selfishness of this young man comes to the forefront immediately. He is unwilling to to wait until the natural time of his inheritance through the death and or retirement of his father. Rather, he says, Dad, you're living too long. (laughs) Give me what I want. I want to go use it right now. It's very selfish. It's dishonoring to his father. And yet his father gives him the money. He gives his inheritance to the younger son and not many days later, his younger son gathers all that he has and he leaves. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting ties with my father. I've got what I wanted from him and I'm out of here. So he goes into a far country, not just next door, not just down the street, not just to the next town over. He goes into a far country and the Bible says, Jesus in his parable says he spends it, he wastes his substance with riotous living, sinful indulgence of the flesh. He lives fast and loose. He does whatever his heart pleases. We continue in verses 14 to 16. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks 
that the swine did eat and no man gave unto him. So at some point, this young man spends all of his inheritance and he has nothing left, but then things get worse. So he probably had some uh, expectation of, okay, well, worst case, I can just kind of bum off so-and-so or I can do whatever. But then a, a famine comes into the land. Things get really bad for him. So he's, it's parched, it's dry. Everybody is now so- struggling. And he has wasted everything that he has already. And everybody is struggling now. He thus lacks the basic necessity to live. So he joins himself to a citizen of that country. And the text says that he begins to work for him. He is being sent out into the fields to feed the swine. So he is working and probably getting something out of that. The citizen sends him to feed the pigs and he was so hungry the Bible tells us that he was tempted on occasion to fill his belly with the husks of the corn, which the pigs ate. So, of course, they, they would put the corn into the trough and whatever, and the pigs would eat the corn off of it. And then he looks at those husks and he says, those are starting to look pretty good. No man is giving anything to him. He is destitute and in need. And take note that this is the picture of a sinner. Jesus first pictures the sinner as the lost sheep who's wandered away. Then he pictures the sinner as the lost coin, and those are to emphasize the love of the the seeker. But notice how he pictures sin here. Whether the rebel in Christ or the rebel outside of Christ, sin ravages the soul and leaves us impoverished and spiritually friendless. Many is the man, woman, and child who finds himself in such a hopeless state today. Many are the souls who are being abused by sin and left destitute and feeling spiritually hopeless. That's what sin does. Sin is a destroyer. The Bible says that sin brings death. And make no mistake, it's not just death, eternal eternal death in the life of the unbeliever. When we allow sin to continue in our lives, it brings about death, spiritual death in our lives. Not unto damnation, but unto loss of fellowship, separation. Sin is a destroyer. Through and through, that's all it can do. We continue. Verses 17 through 19. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. So this young man, the Bible says, finally comes to himself. He wakes up one day and he realizes the desperate situation he's in. And he understands here just how foolish he has been. He realizes that even his father's hired servants are treated better than how he is living in this far country. Here he's being treated and mistreated by a citizen in a faraway country when he could at least attach himself as an obligated servant to his father and find in him, even if his father never treated him a bit different from his other servants, he would find in his father far more kindness, far more charity, far more mercy, far more generosity than anyone in this far country. And by the way, he also won't die of hunger. It's a nice perk. 
So he determines to swallow his pride and to approach his father. But even more than that, this is the, the mark of a heart that's truly repentant, isn't it? Number one, he doesn't just say, I wronged my father. He said, I've sinned against heaven and against my father. I've sinned against heaven and before thee. And then he says, I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. He is in complete submission. He says, I'm not asking to be restored. I'm not asking for anything except to be hired. Just hire me. This is a repentant heart. This is the fruit of a truly repentant heart. It's not, I'm going to go back to dad and say, dad, uh, I messed up, but I want, I want my room back. It's not like that. It's not, I'm going to go back to dad and see if I can just get more out of him. It's not that either. This is, I messed up and I'm ready to take full responsibility. I just want to live. And I know that dad is a merciful and and kind taskmaster. So I'm just going to throw myself at his mercy. So this is what the young man determines to do. He is asked, he's going to ask his father to revoke his privileges of sonship to simply take on the privileges of servanthood. So the young man goes home. And the Bible says this in verses 20 and 21. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And his son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. So the young man travels back from the far country toward his father. And his father sees him afar off. And immediately, the Bible says, when his father saw him, he had compassion. The love and the mercy and the grace welled up in his heart and in his soul. And he said, my son has come home. And so he runs to his son and he falls on his son's neck. That would be a a great hug, right? And kissed him. And immediately, the son who has one goal in mind. He says, I've just, Dad, I've got to tell you this. He's been thinking about it the whole way. I know what I need to say to Dad. I know what I need to say to Dad. I know what I need to say to Dad. I've just got to say it. And so he immediately says, Dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The repentance is immediate. The repentance is expressed. The repentance is clear. But, What's interesting is that these thoughts are not really what's on the mind of the father at all. Notice the father's response in verses 22 to 24. But the father said to his servants, see, he doesn't even acknowledge what the son said. He simply says, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. So the father is not interested in what happened. The father's not interested in what was. The father's not interested in the wasted inheritance. He doesn't say, what did you do with my money? He doesn't say, where were you? He didn't say, what did you do? We don't read any of that. What we read is the father say, restore my son and let's celebrate. He's back. Put on him the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Of course, that would have been the family crest, right? The thing that says that this is, this is my family and, and, and this is my father and this is, this is my rights as a, as the son in this family. 
So he retain, he gets his rights back. He gets his honor back. Shoes on his feet. He came barefoot. And then he says, slay the fatted calf. That would have been something that would have been reserved for very special occasions. And this was one of them. Now, to this point, the response correlates in every way to our other examples, right? To the other two parables of God's love for the lost. The lost sheep which had wandered was found, and the man called his friends to rejoice with him at at what was found. He had devoted extra resources to finding the sheep, and the sheep is found, and he rejoices with his friends. In the lost coin, which had been misplaced, the woman calls her friends when she finds it, and they rejoice together over the coin which now has been found. And now we have a loving father whose heart of love and delight that his son has returned home with a repentant heart causes him to break out into celebration, investing resources in a celebration through the slaying of the fatted calf. And if you slay the fatted calf, you're slaying the fatted calf so that you can share it, right? Everybody would have been rejoicing. All the servants would have been there, possibly friends, who knows? But there were more than just dad and son there that night. We know that. And notice his reasoning. For this, my son was dead And is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is where the focus is. The focus is not on all of the wrongs, real or perceived, which the boy had done. He was not trying to punish his son for his false choices, likely considering well the fact that his choices were punishment enough. Sin ravaged him while he was gone. His son had lost his inheritance. His son had lived in poverty. His son had no friends or advocates. His son had lost his dignity. So now, to this point, like I mentioned, we're right where we were before. Something is lost, now it is found. The owner of that thing, or the the, the father in this case, rejoices that it is now found and calls for friends to rejoice with him. Now, we would expect it to end right there. Three parables, all in succession, all having the same message. But this one doesn't end. And that's important. Jesus continues this parable. And in doing so, he reveals that he has a new lesson to teach in this one. The other two, he gave the lesson clearly. This one, he has a new lesson to teach. He isn't focusing this time upon the father and his rejoicing. That was the last two parables. Now it's in here, but those are the last two parables. In this one, he isn't even really focusing upon the prodigal son, the younger son and his repentance, though it's there, right? It's there. You can teach it. It's there. But notice what's next, verses 25 to 28. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. So there's a good number of people there, right? Music and dancing. And he called one of his of the servants and asked what these things meant. What's going on here? I've been busy in the field all day. What's going on? And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he, that would be the elder son, was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. So, son is, elder son is angry, because younger son came back, and dad is now in the celebration. He'd been faithful in the fields all day, this elder son, right? And he comes back to music and dancing. What's going on? I've been out there working, and here you all are, music and dancing. So what's going on, servant? The servant says, your brother's back. Your father has killed the fatted calf. Spared no expense because he is back. He was lost, and now he's found, and he's safe, and he's sound. 
And at this, the son was angry. He said, I'm not going to go in and celebrate that. And really, I, I get this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if maybe I'm just extra carnal or something, but I can fully understand this. Take a moment to consider when you've been in such a situation and how you might feel. How would you expect dad to react if your younger brother, you, you watch your younger brother go to dad and say, dad, you're not, you're living too long. I want my inheritance. And you say, how, how dare you speak to my father that way? And then he takes his inheritance and he doesn't just keep it there, but he says, okay, now I'm out of here. The younger son, right? I'm out of here. And that's your brother that you're watching disrespect your father and leave. And you look at him and you say, yeah, go and don't come back. If you're going to be that way, go on, go on, don't come back. And then you start envisioning him coming back with his tail between his legs, right? So you're laying in bed at night and you're like, yeah, he'll be back. And when he comes back, oh, it's going to be great, right? He's, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, it's going to be great. He'll be, he'll be low and he'll be all of this, right? And you're thinking about all the ways that you'll just treat him like the scum that he is for what he did to dad and for, for the way he left. And so you're out in the field working hard all day for dad because you've always been faithful to dad. You've always been faithful to dad. And you come in and you hear music and you hear dancing. You see dancing. You don't hear it. Maybe you hear it. One way or another, music and dancing is going on. What's going on? You say to your servant, your brother's back. Not how the elder brother envisioned his brother returning, right? He envisioned lots of groveling, maybe sitting in his room, not being, dad won't even talk to him. I won't even talk to him. He's going to have to earn his way back into favor, all of that. That's what, that's what, that's what you envision. That's, kind of justice, right? And here, dad slayed the fatted calf. Dad's never slayed a fatted calf for me. He did it for, for that bum. He's rejoicing. Dad, how, how long has it been since dad's thrown a party for me? I'm the faithful son, and yet dad is rejoicing over the one that's not. I can understand this. I can relate to this. I can I, I get this. This is actually that, that, that heart that wells up in us when we see people and we see grace and mercy given to them and you say, but I want them to learn their lesson. Ugh. And yet, it's like they got away with it, right? So this is the situation. So son, now elder son is out there with his arms crossed, pouting, angry. I won't go in there. I won't see him. I'll never talk to him again. I don't want to talk to my brother. I don't, I don't want mercy for my brother. I want him to know how hard he's, how much he's hurt me, how much he's hurt dad. I want him to suffer. So dad comes out to son. Isn't that, it's interesting. Dad runs out to prodigal son. But dad's having to come out to faithful son too. So dad comes out. Dad doesn't say faithful son just doesn't get it. I'm just going to stay in with prodigal son. Doesn't say that either, does he? He says, I want my faithful son here too. So he goes out to faithful son. And he says, faithful son, I want you to come in. Rejoice with us. Verses 29 and 30. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. For many years I've been faithful to you, Dad, and this is how you repay me. 
How selfish, right? It has nothing to do with him. But my younger brother, he wastes your money. He doesn't earn a living. He blows it all with harlots and you slay the fatted calf for him. You rejoice over him. You invite his friends over. How unfair, dad. And in fact, we might agree with the son. But notice again the father's response. Verses 31 and 32. He said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. You know what else I love about this parable? It ends right there. Jesus doesn't explain it. Jesus doesn't move on past it and, and, and give the, the interpretation like he does for the first two. He just stops and that's it. Now the first two he was making a point about God and this one it ends here because he's making a point about Pharisees. And they get to figure that one out for themselves. Dad says, Son, you are with me. The bulk of my inheritance is yours and you have been treated very well for your loyalty to me. This has nothing to do with you, son. I'm not taking anything from you to give it to your brother. You still have your inheritance. It's all yours. That's not what I'm doing here. This is about your brother who was lost coming home. Your brother's redemption does not lessen my treatment of you. Your brother's redemption does not reduce the way my, my love for you. Does your brother's happiness threaten your own happiness? Indeed, it does not. This is simply you wanting him to be punished because you think you're better than him. And you want him to know it. Because you've behaved better. And this is the point of the parable. Now remember the context. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are unhappy that Jesus is receiving publicans and sinners, right? That's how, that's how this whole chapter began. So, so bring that back. Bring that context back as we're interpreting it. They were unhappy that Jesus would heal those who, who they deemed unworthy. They were unhappy that Jesus would fellowship with those whom they deemed unworthy. Jesus was telling them that they were being the older brother. Now, again, we can't take it too far because before we apply, let's gain some perspective here. Parables, one point we mentioned already. We can't take the parable of the lost coin or the lost sheep too far. And it's the same with this one. Again, if we assume that every aspect of the older brother is carried over to the Pharisees, then we start to muddy water, don't we? Because again, if the father is God and the Pharisees are the older brother in every way, then the older bro- then the Pharisees receive all of the inheritance of God. And we know that that's not true. So uh, what we're seeing here is Jesus telling a story. It's a story that was to relate to real life and it was to bring to the surface one lesson, one lesson in parable number one, parable number two, the lesson was God rejoices over repentant sinners. In parable number three, we see all of the elements of that same lesson, but then it's extended to, and you are griping over people coming to Christ. That shows something. That shows that you're not a friend of the owner. Because you're griping instead of rejoicing. 
That's the point. That's the lesson. And if we get outside of that, then we put ourselves on shaky theological ground. Uh, and the first two, if we focus on the sheep or the coin, we would assume that the restoration of sinners is entirely in the hands of God without any input from the sinner itself, himself, right? But that's not what the parable is teaching. In certain theological circles, that's an acceptable idea. But biblically speaking, it's not right. It's not right. To draw that from these parables is a disservice to the text. Indeed, if Jesus had come to drag lost sheep to eternal life, right? If Jesus had come to find every one of his lost sheep, to put them on his shoulders and bring them in that pattern, in that way, to, to take them against their will even into the paddock, then all of these Pharisees and Sadducees would certainly be among them. But more than that, when Jesus just a little while ago said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood and ye would not, that wouldn't have been said if Jesus was going out and taking each one of his sheep and putting them on his shoulders and bringing them in, right? So we, we can't take the parable and go that far with it because that's not where the parable is meant to go. That's not the point of the parable. The point is the rejoicing. And we know that because it's explained in verse 7. Don't do disservice to the parable. It's the same with the lost coin. And then when we get to the younger brother and, this other, and, and some of the other elements of this parable, if we focus too much on the scenario, again, we get ourselves into strange spiritual territory. If we try to nail down the relationship between the brothers and how they, uh, how they correlate to man's relationship with God, the closest we would come, as I mentioned, would to say that they were both children of Israel who had God's promises as a part of God's chosen people. But then what is this inheritance that's given to them? What would that represent? What gift does God give which a man can use and then squander, right? What man can say, God, give me your gift and then go and squander it in riotous living and then lose it and then come back to God? What, what then do we do with the son who remained? He stayed in his father's good graces. Is Jesus talking about the Pharisees? That doesn't make theological sense. They who have rejected Jesus' identity cannot be those whom God has given everything. What do we do with the younger son coming back and asking not to be restored as a son, but only as a servant? All of these things create theological issues which would contradict clearer teaching in the Bible. So we can make observations, but we need to be careful to draw theological conclusions that are not meant to be there. Observations about the son's rebellion and repentance. That's a good thing. We can, we can draw spiritual truths from that. Observations about the father and his love and his anticipatory love and running out to his son. We can draw truths from that. Observations about life of sin and the devastation. We can draw truths from that. Observations about the elder son and his faithfulness. We can draw truths from that. But the point is this. The father and two sons, a situation where one son was lost and at some point he realized he did wrong and he repents and he comes back and the father opens his arms and grants him mercy because that's what our father does. And the elder son who has been good and faithful and obedient sees the father putting resources into the younger son and he gets angry and he wants the, uh, the elders, uh, the younger son utterly rejected for his sin and the loving father would not do that to a repentant son. Why can't the elder brother just be happy for his, his younger brother? For the mercy that dad is showing him. His younger brother's actions have not threatened him or his relationship with his father or his inheritance or his well-being. But see, we have this sense of justice within us which fe feels like we need to punish people further for their wrong actions. 
And we can even get upset when we consider the mercy of God upon, upon those who have wronged him or others. And this was the point of the parable. All that other stuff about love and redemption and the devastation of sin, many of those things are true things and good things and fine things. And they're fine to draw out of the text. But the point is this. Don't be so proud, high-minded, and unmerciful that you would desire those who have made mistakes to receive no mercy or that you would be upset at the mercy which a loving God shows to desperate sinners. Let's apply this evening. Point number one. We need to understand this. Humanity has intrinsic value. Remember worth. One of the important lessons which we find in the combination of these three parables today is the intrinsic worth which with, with which God saw, sees humanity. Enough worth to leave the 99 to, to go after the one. Enough worth to invest the time to find the lost coin. Enough worth to invest in the restoration of a wayward son. And so it is that God has reckoned your soul, my soul, so it is that God has reckoned us to have worth to him. You have worth to God. God has reckoned even the lowest upon this earth to have intrinsic worth. And it is for this reason that you and I don't have to worry about what others think of us, right? So what if that person thinks you look funny? Or if that person thinks you're not smart or you're not talented or thinks they're better than you. So what if that person or if society itself or culture thinks you're weird or different or worthless? Because really, what does God think of you? Right? How does God see you? God would leave the 99 to come find you, wouldn't he? God would light the lamp and sweep the floors to get you back, wouldn't he? And for this reason, you and I need to stop imposing our judgments upon others as well. Did Christ not die for that person who you think is different than you? Did Christ not die for that person who you think doesn't deserve love or mercy or even consideration? Who are you to impose a judgment upon them that God is not imposing? Who are you to second guess the mercy of God? Who are you to second guess the grace of God? Who are you to say, God, that person really doesn't deserve your mercy? Who are you to think that that person is not worth it? We live in a culture that has been degraded to near constant judgment of people's motives and intentions. We live in a society that has decided anyone who doesn't think the way they think or they want us to think is a threat to them or is somehow inferior to them in ability or in rationalization. As we considered some weeks ago, we were even tempted to look around us and place ourselves upon a spiritual pedestal and so to consider others legitimately inferior to us. But the Bible says that God rejoices over the one sinner who comes to repentance more than the 99 who don't need it. Because God pursues the hearts of men not just to include evil men but because they are evil men and this is because humanity has intrinsic value to God we need to remember that all men have worth in the eyes of God so remember worth humanity has intrinsic value number two the lost demand more resources than the found remember cost 
Let us take a moment to consider what God does and is doing in the lives of people every day. Let us take a moment and remember the time, the effort, even the money, the investment that it takes to recover men and women from the depths of their own sin. When I go to the jail on Wednesdays, I invest two and a half hours in that jail time talking to these men and women. And it's gotten better. That first year was really bad. But some days when I come back from the jail, my spirit is so weary from those two and a half hours of what's what I've been listening to and dealing with that the rest of the day is almost just refilling, resting the spirit, prayer and reading the Bible and trying to get back up to some level. I talked to a woman this last week. It's a very difficult conversation. She had her first child at 14. And she's 34 now. Uh, multiple, multiple men, children with different men. The whole situation was just so hard to listen to. And when you bear those burdens, there's a cost. How much investment does it take to recover men and women from sin? Let us take a moment and consider the faithfulness and devotion of parents who teach their children the gospel and sound doctrine. Parents, you know how much investment it takes. Your children may not understand how much you've invested in them, but it takes great investment, effort, money, time, prayer. Let us take a moment to consider the faithfulness and devotion of ministers who teach and preach sound doctrine, of pastors and Sunday school teachers and missionaries and evangelists. There is so much investment there. Let us take a moment to consider the number of hours it takes to disciple young believers, to make them mature believers. The hours and the hours of Bible study and of questions and of prayer in order to take a young believer, uh, an infant, a baby believer, and make them a mature believer. Let us remember that God has sent men and women to invest in us. At some point, every one of us was as one of those lost sheep going astray. Every one of us was without Christ Someone gave up something in order to invest in your eternity. And finally, let us remember the ultimate cost. Let us remember that even if no one had ever invested in you spiritually, if you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it was because there was a day when a perfect man who had never sinned, veiled deity itself, God in flesh, marched up a hill bearing a cross, bloody, beaten, and worn, and was subjected to pain and torture and placed upon a cross and suffered a brutal death and bore your sin. The lost demand resources. Let us remember those who died for the book we hold in our hands. Those who died because it was heresy to translate it into the language that people could understand. Those who hid it and were killed and were chased so that we could hold it and walk around with it and have it on our phone and on our computer and on our tablet and listen to it on audiobook and, 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 and take it wherever we go and read it wherever we can, wherever we want. And so let us remember that the lost do demand more resources than the found. That the initial investment into a spiritual life is greater than those who have lived it for a while. And it's the same way with children, right? 
if you do things in a fashion that's perhaps we call wise, you invest in children the most when they're the youngest. That's the time where you're really heavily investing and teaching them and teaching them right and teaching them wrong and teaching them discipline and teaching them obedience. Uh, uh, the, the investment that it takes to teach them reading as opposed to once they know how to read, how much they can do themselves and how much they can learn themselves as opposed to before that when they can't read and you have to invest and teach. This is natural, right? Now, should my older children resent it that we're investing in our younger children more right now? Well, we'd say it's misguided because at one time we invested in you. And they need it more than you do. And that's not a bad thing. That's, that's the point. We'll come back to this in a moment in our final point uh, to, to, to speak on this again. But point number three, the owner rejoices in the restoration of the lost. Uh, remember compassion. So we have worth in the eyes of God. We have intrinsic value. And your redemption has come at a cost, as does all. Let us never forget just how compassionate our Lord is. It is the character of our God to pursue the lost and to rejoice when they repent. It is the character of our God to pour out love upon a repentant heart. It is the character of our God to choose mercy whenever his justice allows. It is the character of our God to be long-suffering. It is the character of our God when the lost are found to call for all those who love him to rejoice with him in the finding. And once again, believer, let us be eternally grateful that it is so, for there was a day when that compassion fell on you. And perhaps there will be a day when it needs to fall on you again, not unto salvation, but perhaps unto a, a different repentance. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, right? Thank God that he is who he is. For without it, we would be without hope. Okay, the culmination of our thoughts, the final point here. Don't spend your life resenting others or God's dealings with them. Remember your place. This is the warning that God is so compassionate. And if we're followers of Christ, then we need to be that too. That God poured his resources into the redemption of lost souls. And if we're followers of Christ, then we need to do that too. That God sees in men in intrinsic human worth, the image of God and man, an eternal spirit. And if God sees that and we're followers of God, then we need to see that too. And it is arrogant presumption for us to step outside of God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion, God's recognition of worth, or God's investment. And say we're above that. We're beyond that. We're greater than that. The elder son resented his father for his mercy upon his brother. The elder son resented his younger brother for his irresponsible choices. The Pharisees resented Jesus for having compassion upon those whom they had chosen to shun and to put out of their sight all of those who had made wrong choices. May I say it this way? Life is too short to spend your time living under resentment of others' choices or God's dealings with them. There's too much work to be done for us to spend our time thinking that we're better than other people and being grumpy at how God handles their lives. There's just too much to do. There's too much work to be done. There's too much treasure in heaven to be won. 
It is not your place to punish people for their choices. That is not your place. That is God's place. Even if those choices have hurt you or ones you love, it is not your place. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. It's not your place to do so. It's God's place. Do you really think that you can be more just than God? Do you really think that you can be more compassionate than God? Do you really think that you understand the line between justice and mercy better than God does? Can you not leave it with him? It is not your place to stand over others and pass judgment upon them and to stand outside while the party is inside as some sort of private protest against God's mercy. Now, true, we don't, we, we don't tell people that sin is okay. We don't do that. We don't say, well, I'm just going to not tell you that you're a sinner because I want to have compassion. That's not compassion. That's the least compassionate thing you can do if somebody is on their way to hell to not tell them they're on their way to hell. That is, that is not love. That's hatred. But to stand outside while the party is going on inside over a sinner who has repented, it's, it's just arrogant presumption. If you know someone who has lived wrongly but has repented, praise God for that. The lost has been found. Praise God for that. As you see God deal mercifully with evil people, there's going to be a part of you that says, ugh. But there ought to be a bigger part of you that says, praise God for that. Let God be true. Let his justice be done. And if you know someone who is still in the wilderness of their wanderings, whether without Christ or lost within Christ, ache for their reconciliation. Ache for their reconciliation. Long for their return. Don't worry about the punishment. They have to suffer. They have to get to rock bottom. They have to, they have to get to the bottom before they can climb up. That's, don't, don't worry about that. Let God deal with that ache for their restoration. And this is the point of the parable. The first two taught us just how much God rejoices over sinners coming to repentance. The final parable adds that little extra bit that teaches one extra layer just how prone we can be to resent God's mercy over sinners because we want the sinners to pay for their sin when when we perceive that they've done much more wrong than we have. I'd like to share one passage as we close today, which I believe summarizes what I interpret to be the point of this parable quite well. First John chapter four, verses seven through 11 says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Where God rejoices, you ought to rejoice. Where God puts his resources, you ought to put your resources. Where God has compassion, so too ought you. Don't be the angry son. As a matter of fact, don't be either of those sons. Just stay away from those sons. 
Let's be like the Father. Understanding worth, ready to pay the cost, remembering compassion, and understanding our place in it all. Let's close in prayer.